I'm going to be speaking this morning about hope. And uh, if you've been following along with us in the book of Ruth, uh, hope is a, uh, an element that's kind of been missing up to this point. We, uh, we looked over three weeks at um, how suffering is the breeding ground for love and how, how love is, uh, we're called in love to go against our feelings, against our emotions, and love when it's hard, love when it's difficult, to love in the desert place, to love through the trials and the struggles. And so the question that comes to us as we look at all this is why? Why should we endure? Why should we keep loving when it's hard? Why should we keep loving when, when it seems like God has abandoned us? Why should, we, why should we keep loving through our laments? And the answer to that question, why, is because of hope. That hope lays at the, the foundation of, of all that we are as followers of God and as followers of Jesus. And, and hope answers that why question. For Riverside, uh, one of our, our slogans in the beginning was real hope for real people in the real world. That it's always been about hope, the real hope of Jesus for real people like you and I with real problems in the real world. Living in Horsham or Hapro or Willow Grove or Souderton or wherever you're from, you've got everyday issues. And Jesus is the hope, not just eternally, but in your day-to-day life. We believe that as a church. And so when we think about hope, I want you to think about it this way, that that hope is like the fuel that goes in our tank. For for a follower of Jesus, hope is what gets us up in the morning. It's what allows us to go through the day. It's what keeps us loving, keeps us pursuing holiness and righteousness. It keeps us following after God. It's hope. It's it's striving for something that's out there in the future. But this isn't a a flimsy, weak hope. This is a hope and a sure thing. It's, It's hope in knowing that something greater is going to be coming. And so a thought thought in mind, I want you to, to read through with me. We're going to look at Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, and, uh, and we're going to be looking for this, this glimpse of hope that begins to dawn in Ruth and Naomi's situation. And so uh, if you follow along with me, beginning in verse 1, it says this, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. And so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. And so she came, and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. And so let's just pause there for a moment and set the stage. They, they had just gotten into town, but as Keith shared last week at the very end of chapter 1, we saw that they had returned at the time of the barley harvest. And so that was the first glint of hope. If you guys remember... They, uh, Ruth and Naomi, uh, well, originally Naomi left Israel because there was a famine. There was no food, and so they went to Moab, and they were sojourning there. And then, and then um, uh, her children married. Uh, her sons died. Her husband died. Everybody died, right? And all she was left was her two daughter-in-laws, and, uh, and Ruth remained with her. And now they're returning because they had heard that rain had come to Israel, that there was food once again. And so they're coming back to this place of food 
at the time of the barley harvest, and the harvest is happening. And so they wake up that morning, and Ruth says, hey, I'm not going to sit around here. I can get out in the field. I can get us something to eat. We're hungry. There's food. I've just got to be willing to go get it. And so she goes, and she's gathering, and then the owner of the field, Boaz, comes along and says, hey, who is this? And his worker says, hey, this is the girl that we heard about. This is the one that, that came back with Naomi from Moab. And she's been working here really hard, diligently, all day. And so let's see what Boaz says, beginning in verse 8. He says, uh, then Boaz said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And, now, and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings... You have come to take refuge. And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. And so she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean. And do not rebuke her. So can you guys see it? The, the story is starting to turn. A story of bleak, desert, suffering, bitterness, lament. Suddenly there's a turn where things begin to get better. There's a hope that begins to emerge. And so as we look at this pasture day, I want us to look at three things. I want us to look at what it's like to perceive hope, what it's like to prepare for hope, and what it's like to participate in hope. Perceiving hope, preparing for hope, and participating in hope. So we begin with perceiving hope. And by that, I just mean seeing it. Do you, do you see it as a reality? Is hope some, some distant thing? Some We just came back from Walt Disney World, right? Is, is, is hope the thing of Disney World? Is it this, this kind of uh, just whimsical thing, or is it a reality? Is it a hard and fast reality in your life? Do you perceive it all around? Do you see where hope is happening all around you? It's this idea that God is at work and he's in control. He has a greater purpose in mind. That life is not just a series of random events, but rather that God is, is in control. He's orchestrating. He's at work for our good. Many of you know the verse Jeremiah 29 11. It says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. We hold on to that. That's, like, that's, like, that's a good life verse, right? But the, the crazy thing about that verse is that was given through the prophet Jeremiah at the beginning of the exile, right? Israel had been punished. They had been removed from the land. They had gone into exile. And he said, hey, you're going into exile, and you're going to suffer, and you're going to be cut off from the land, and this is not going to be a good season for you. You're going to have to endure. But I want you to know that I know the plans I have for you, and they're plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Endure through this desert season for the hope of what's to come. Our deepest reality as Christians is founded on hope. As we go through the day, whatever trials and struggles we face, whatever difficulties we come up against, whatever, whatever thing gets in our way, whatever loss we suffer or thing we grieve, underneath all of that is this incredible hope that when we die, 
we get to go and be with our Creator because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And so no matter, and it, it doesn't mean that we don't grieve. It doesn't mean that we don't suffer. It doesn't mean that we don't have difficulties in life. We have all of those things. But undergirding all of that is this relentless hope, this hope that the story ends in a way much better than where it sits right now. That gives us the strength and the compassion and the, the ability to move forward, to take one step, ahead, to put one foot in front of the other, even in the most difficult of times. God is at work. Uh, it says in there, uh, there's an interesting phrase in there. It says, and she happened to come to the part of field belonging to Boaz. And in the, in the, in the original language, it's, it's even, it kind of doubles it. It says, as luck would have it, she chanced upon the field. Is kind of the literal interpretation of the words that are in there. Um, but it's kind of done with a wink, right? Like, we, as we read the story, we're like, none of this is happening by accident. And so it just so happened that she came to the field of Boaz, her, her family relative, who's of the same clan as her. And, and we, as the, the people sitting outside the story, look at it and be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Something's about to happen here, right? Like, whenever you're watching a movie and you see the incredibly too good-looking guy come into the scene of the lonely single girl, right? And you're like, oh, wait a minute. I think we know where this is going, right? So as, 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 as trained story watchers, we're looking at this, and we can see that God is, is doing things. As followers of Jesus, we don't believe that, that, that life is just random chance. And I experienced this in my own life. I, uh, before I came to work at the church, I was working for a company uh, importing goods from China. And we would warehouse them down in Kentucky, and we were getting a lot of returns. Things were getting damaged. And so I had to fly down to Kentucky to kind of figure out what was wrong with the packaging process and how we could fix it. And uh, one of my good friends, Mark Kripsik, had moved down there to go to seminary, and so I was excited to go to Louisville, mostly because I would get a chance to hang out with him. Well, the night we were supposed to hang out, he all of a sudden calls me and says, hey, uh, I'm so sorry to do this, but our son is really sick, and we're going to have to take him to the ER, and so I'm not going to be able to hang out with you tonight. I, I apologize. And so all of a sudden, I had no plans. I'm in a strange city. I don't know anyone. And I'm like, well, there's a seminary here. So there's probably like a Christian coffee shop out there somewhere. I can go see a band or somebody play. So I Googled Louisville Christian coffee shop or Christian cafe or whatever. And the first thing that popped up was Christian cafe, singles dating website, free 10-day trial, right? So, so I scanned down. There was no Christian coffee shop listed in Louisville. But I was like, well, I'm bored. <laughs> I'm, in a, I'm in a foreign town. I got nothing else to do. I guess maybe I'll fill out this profile. So I go on. I fill out the profile. Um, and uh, they start feeding me these, uh, they, you know, they match you up with people. And, and so I'm looking at this, and, uh, you know, I send notes to a couple different ladies. And, um, and then there's this one girl that's just, like, super beautiful. And I was like, wow, like, I really hope this girl gets back to me. So I sent her, I don't know, I said something really cool. I don't remember what I said, but <laughs> trust me, it was awesome. And uh, <laughs> so lo and behold, she gets back to me. And so over the course of the couple of days that I'm in Louisville, I start this online conversation with her. And then uh, towards the end of the week, I, or I'm getting ready to fly back to Pennsylvania, and she messages me and says, hey, I only came on for the free 10-day trial, uh, but, um, but if you want to keep talking, here's my MySpace info. That's when MySpace was really cool. And uh, Tom, my friends were her and Tom. Um, and so she sends me her MySpace info, and we start talking, and, uh, and I had only done the 10-day trial. I never paid. She only did the 10-day trial. She never paid. And we start talking to each other, and you guys may have guessed that this was actually the way that I met my wife, Trina. And so, um, and I couldn't imagine a more perfect and beautiful and wonderful person to be married to. Like, it's so clear to me in so many ways that God ordained for us to come together. But I just so happened to be in Louisville, and, and my friend's son just so happened to go to the ER, and I just happened to Google search, and this site just happened to pop up, and she just happened to be on for a 10-day free trial at the same time that I just so happened to be on for a 10-day trial, and we ended up together. Now, you might say, hey, that was, that was good luck for you, but I say 
that was God moving a bunch of pieces and even using a tragic trip to the ER. And the kid was fine, so don't worry about, don't worry about him. He's okay. That's not a tragic part of the story. But his trip to the ER became part of my, one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me in my life. And so I see God at work. And so I, I know you guys looking out here, I know you have stories similar to this where you have seen God at work in your life in an undeniable way where you say, God was doing something there. His hand was at work. See, the pagan lifestyle or the humanist or the scientist or the, the, you know, the rationalist, they, they say life is a circle. You're born, you do some stuff, you accumulate some stuff, and then you die. And then you go off into the ether or you, or you become one with the universe. Or if you're in the Lion King, you become a giant cloud lion thing, right? And you might even celebrate it and sing about the circle of life and make it sound all happy and glowing. But the reality is, is that's depressing, right? <laughs> I come, I've got a little bit of time, and whether I do a lot of great things or a lot of terrible things, it doesn't really matter because I'm going to come around the circle and I'm going to end up right back where I started and I'm just going to vaporize into nothing, right? But the Christian cycle is different. The Christian see life as, as a J-shape. They see us as, as, as going through good, going through struggles and difficulty, desert, and then ultimately getting to better. This happens on the macro scale in our life, right? We're born, we live a life, we find uh, Jesus, we recognize our sin, we die, but then we go to be with Jesus forever. And so, so there's this, this J-shaped redemption cycle, but it also happens in micro ways throughout our life. You guys have probably experienced this, right? Keith shared just a couple weeks ago. He was going along, he had a job, things were pretty good. All of a sudden, he lost his job. He lost, he lost all these things, but all of a sudden, he found Jesus, and he took off this J-shape that appears in our life. It's all throughout Scripture. Abraham, righteous, good man, too old to have kids. That ship had sailed. He had missed his opportunity. It was over, and then suddenly God says, nope, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation, and he becomes the father of the nation of Israel. Joseph, his brothers, he, you know, he's, he's in this great family. His dad gives him his coat. He's his dad's favorite son. Then all of a sudden he gets thrown in a pit. He gets sent off to jail. He's in languishing in jail forever. But then he comes out and he becomes the second highest in, in the nation of Egypt. And he saves the nation of Israel. Moses, born in the palace, murders somebody out in the desert, brings the nation of Israel out of slavery, right? Over and over again we see this path in David's life, in the nation of Israel itself, in Jonah, in Elijah, we see it over and over and over and over again. And you guys see it in your lives, that this is the expectation. We perceive hope because it's a reality. It happens. So Ruth and Naomi are in this J-curve right now, and they're at the bottom, right? They had moved to another country. They had found some rest there. Then all of a sudden, ones that they love and care about die. They're left uh, in a very bad situation. They end up down here at the bottom of the curve. And here's what Paul Miller in his book, A Loving Life, says that this is what we should do when we're at the bottom of the J-curve. First of all, we don't know when or how resurrection will come. We don't know what it's going to look like. Think about Joseph languishing in that prison. Time after time, he, he, he tells some dreams for some guys, and he says, hey, when you get out, remember me. And they get out, and they don't remember him. And he goes on, and he languishes in jail. And how many times did he think, man, did God just abandon me? Am I just, am I just here in jail until the day I die? He didn't know how or when redemption was going to come. And he didn't know what it would look like. And we don't know what it's going to look like. We don't know what that redemption piece is going to look like. But most of the time, it doesn't look like what we expect. We have an expectation, and God has something far better in mind, right? I just wanted to go out and see some Christian bands at a coffee shop. God had something way better in mind when he redeemed that night for me. He says that we need to embrace the death before us. A lot of times, God takes us into a desert. He takes us into a difficult place and time because there's something that he wants to remove from our heart. That something has taken his rightful place on the throne of our heart, 
And he needs to take us through a desert season to strip that away from us. And the best thing that we can do is embrace that death. Say, you know what, God, you're right. I, was, I, I thought that life was all about comfort, but it's not all about comfort. I thought life was all about getting what I wanted, but that's not what it's all about. I thought it was all about my reputation, but my reputation isn't really that important. All these things that we can put above God, uh, he might be trying to strip away, and the best thing we can do is just embrace that. Embrace the death. Give it a funeral if you need to, right? <laughs> but then move on into what he has for you. And he says, if we endure, resurrection will always come. In one way, shape, form, or time, resurrection will always come. So that's perceiving the hope, seeing it in your life. Do you guys see it? In your situation that you're in right now, can you see the hope? Is there any hope? Can you, can you say, man, I, God, I don't, I don't even know how or when or what redemption for my situation will look like, but, but I've seen you do it so many times in so many ways in Scripture and in people around me that, and in my life in the past that I just have to believe that you're going to get me out of this situation even though I can't see the way out. Do you see it? Do you have a hope? Second, preparing for hope. How do we prepare for help? How do we put ourselves in a position to be ready when hope arrives, when hope dawns on the scene? How do we put ourselves in the spot where we can receive that? Well, Ruth and Naomi are much like the story of the prodigal son where, where he ended up in a pigsty wallowing, and finally he said, what am I doing? There's food in my father's house. Ruth and Naomi were in Moab. They were, they were destitute. They were struggling, and they said, hey, God has revisited the nation of Israel. That's where we should be. We need to return. We need to go back. You need to put yourself in a position, sometimes physically put yourself in a position to receive hope. But so many times we want God to just do a miracle where we're at. We just say, God, just redeem my situation like it is. And in fact, I'll dig the ditch a little bit deeper so that when you redeem it, it'll be that much more amazing, right? That's a bad strategy, right? (laughs) Don't dig any deeper, right? Move towards the edge, whatever the edge might be, whatever glimmer of hope might be on the horizon, move towards that. Position yourself in a place where you can, where you can be a recipient of the hope that, that Jesus wants to give to you. And what does this look like real practically? Let me, let me break it down, guys. If you're in a relationship with somebody that you know you're not supposed to be with, but you're just kind of messing around with it, you need to get clean of that, right? How, how's God going to bring the right person into your life if you're tethered to the wrong person, Right? If you're preoccupied and, and just connected to sin, if there's just a sin that you're unrepentant and you're unwilling to remove from your life, how can you create the space in your heart for the hope that God wants to bring in there? If you've allowed uh, debt or an addiction or, or something uh, to come in, are you willing to take the small step? Are you willing to come to a Thursday night group and begin dealing with that so that God can begin to prepare your heart for what he ultimately wants to do? Are you willing to take a small step of obedience to prepare yourself to receive the hope. That's what Ruth and Naomi did when they moved back to Bethlehem. Second, focus on what you have, not on what you lack. It would have been really easy for Ruth to, uh, to look at the situation and just wake up that morning and be like, oh, well, first of all, I'm going to sleep in because I've got no job and I've got no husband and I've got no family. <laughs> I've got nothing, but what I do have is the ability to sleep in and that's what I'm going to do, right? She didn't do that. She didn't say, man, I'm stuck here with this complaining old lady, and I've, like, I've connected myself to her. I'm, oh, man, woe is me, right? She got up early, and she said, hey, there's food out there. We're hungry. I'm going to go get some food, right? She focused on the opportunity, and it was cool because, because they had put themselves in a position for hope. They had returned to the nation of Israel. God had systematically 
provided a means of hope for them, and it was in the laws related to the harvest. Listen to this from Leviticus 19. It's in a section that's all about loving your neighbor as yourself. And God says, what does that practically look like? Well, here's what it looks like. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field all the way up to the edge, and neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. That God had systematically, in the nation of Israel, created this way to provide for the poor. And it was a system where those who were in need could go out to the field, and, and the command was, hey, don't go all the way. If this is your border, don't go all the way up and harvest everything. Leave the edges for those who are hungry, those in the, in the, who can't provide for themselves, who don't own a field, who, who don't have any food to eat. Leave that for them. And if as you're gathering, you drop some, don't go back and pick up every last crumb. Allow that. Leave that for them. And so it wasn't, hey, gather up all your food and take it to the, to the home of the poor. That would have been nice. That would have been above and beyond, right? But, but God created a system in which the poor were also called to work, right? They had to get up. They had to come out of their home. They had to come out to the field. They had to work hard. But if they were willing to do that, they could eat. And so positionally, Ruth and Naomi were put in a position to do it, and they focused on what they had, not what they lacked. They said, hey, we don't have much. We don't have food. We don't, but we do have an opportunity to go and provide for ourselves, and that's exactly what Ruth did. She went out in the field, and she took advantage of it. Man, this is a big one for us, right? How often do we focus on what we lack rather than on what we have? And it can get embarrassing for us as Americans pretty quickly, where we're like, yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, we do have two cars in the garage, but, um, but one of them's got like 60,000 miles. It's going at any time, so we really need, and that one doesn't have a navigation system. I could get, you right? Like, we can complain really easily about things that just don't matter, right? How often do we complain about the food that's laid before us rather than thinking about, oh, wow, there's food. I can eat today, right? So many times we complain because we're focused on what we lack rather than what we have. And especially when we're suffering and we're lamenting and we're grieving, it makes it even that much easier to complain because nothing tastes good, nothing looked good. Our attitude is turned away. But, but God says, hey, focus on what I have given you. Focus on the opportunity that is there. Focus on what you do have whatever that looks like in your life. And so I ask you, are you focused on what you have or what you lack? The third part of preparing for hope is pursuing a godly character regardless of your situation. No matter whether you're in a time of prosperity or lack, whether you're in a time of sickness or in health, are you pursuing righteousness and holiness and living in a good way? And, and we don't hear this preached a lot, honestly, because we're worried about veering into prosperity gospel. We're worried about saying, hey, hey, do good stuff so God will give you things, right? And it's not about that exchange at all. It's about seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But Jesus says, and all these things will be added to you. Put him first and everything else will be added in. Look at Ruth's character in this. She takes action. She's not passive. She's, she's aggressive. She goes out and, and does something. She seeks God's favor. She works hard. She's humble. She's unassuming. She receives well. She doesn't say, oh, no, no, Boaz. No, I don't need your charity. I, I'll just go out here and <laughs> grab my little stalks. Of no, she's like, wow, how, how generous of you. Thank you so much. She receives well when somebody wants to help her. She's humble. She's grateful. When I, uh, what I didn't tell you guys is when I was down in Louisville and when I got online and met my wife, uh, that that same week was a time when I was really wrestling through something in my, in my heart and in my mind 
as I told you, uh, Mark, who had been on staff at Riverside, went down to seminary to uh, be trained and eventually to come back here to plant a church. And at the same time, a church out in Westchester had just called us and said, hey, we've got a building we want to give you to plant a church. And so uh, our other associate pastor, David Pearson, had decided that he wanted uh, and was being led and called by Jesus to go out and to plant a church in Westchester. And so all of a sudden we were going from a staff at three at Riverside down to a staff of one, just Aaron Harvey, the lead pastor. And so he had talked to me before I left for Louisville and said, hey, as I want to get together with you next week. And I knew that what he was going to ask me is, like, if I would want to come on staff. I'd already begun volunteering as uh, leading the, wor- the band, being the worship leader. And I knew that he was going to ask me uh, at our meeting if I would want to come on staff. And so I was praying and, and seeking God about that while I was on this trip. And I remember uh, as I was flying home from Louisville, and it was a beautiful morning. It was an early flight. The sun was coming up through the clouds. I'd been reading this, this really awesome book about this 24-7 prayer movement in Europe and, and the hope that God was bringing through that. And I remember just kind of being in a time of prayer and worship and just feeling this peace that, that, that God was going to be with me and that, that he was calling me to take this step of faith. And so I knew in that moment that I was confident and I committed, hey, when I go to meet with Aaron and he asks me, I'm going to say yes. I'm going to leave my job and the comfort and the things that I know and I'm going to go on staff with the church and I'm going to be obedient. And so I don't think it's coincidence that that weekend that I made that decision in my heart was the same weekend that God brought my wife into my life. Um, And I'm not saying, if you're here and you're single, I'm not saying quit your job, come on staff, and then you'll get married. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. Your story may be different than mine. Your story probably is different than mine. But what I am saying is that I wasn't saying to God, all right, God, I'll come on staff, but you better give me a wife. You better give me what I want. I was seeking first the kingdom. I was saying, God, I feel like you're calling me this. I'm going to be obedient to this. I'm seeking your righteousness. I'm going to do this because I, I feel like this is where you're leading me. And when I took that step of faith, I don't think it's a coincidence that he brought in not only what I needed but what I wanted as well and blessed me beyond, beyond measure. And so I want to encourage you that God loves to bless the righteous. Uh, if you get a chance, I don't have a time to go through it now, but, but read through Psalm 37, the entire psalm is really just talking about God's heart for blessing those who are righteous. And I'll pull out one little snippet here. He says in verse 27, or Psalm 37, verse 25, I've been young and now I'm old, yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. This is not prosperity gospel. This is not salvation by works. This is not earning God's favor, but this is being a holy and righteous person pursuing righteousness, pursuing God so that he can use you and work through you. And so I ask you, are you pursuing righteousness? Are you pursuing comfort and and love and entertainment and other things that will pass away? In a real practical sense, you can look at at your day calendar. Look at your checkbook. Where are you investing yourself, your time, your talents, and your treasures? Are you gathering with other believers in discipleship and in small groups and in ministry? Or are you, are you uh, just trying to, to hit the local bar, right? <laughs> I, I want to encourage you, if you're single here, you're, you're much better coming to church to try and find a spouse than the bar. I'm just telling you that. Or try ChristianCafe.com. That might work too. But I owe them something. I never paid them. But just kidding about that piece of it. Are you reading your Bible or are you reading your Facebook scroll constantly? You know, hey, we do it, right? And I'm not saying that you should never go out in social places and you should never go to a ball game and you should never look at Facebook. But, but where's the, where is your heart gravitating to you? What's the, what is descriptive of what you're pursuing in your life? If somebody were to objectively look at your life, what would they say you're pursuing? 
The third thing, and this is where uh, these things connect and intersect, is participating in hope. Because the greatest hope is not necessarily the hope that's in your life. It might be the hope that God is working in someone else's life and that he's allowing you to play a part in. And that's where Boaz comes in, in this really incredible way. It's not just about our hope. God may be actually using us as the agent of hope in someone else. Boaz offers this blessing over. He says, may God bless you. May he he wrap you under his wing like a mother hen. And God's like, yes, Boaz, I'm going to answer that prayer, and I'm going to use you to do it. You're going to be my agent. You're going to be the one through whom this blessing comes true. Well, how did Boaz put himself in a a position to participate in Ruth's hope? First, he was aware of the situation around you, around him. He walked in and he said, hey, who's that girl? What's going on here? Oh, that's, that's Ruth. That's the one that came with Naomi. Oh, I heard about that. That's, that's amazing. God's at work in her. I, w- I want to be a part of that. I want to I be connected with what, what God's doing here because God's doing something awesome. We just hosted a mission team last week. I didn't get to meet them at all, but we love hosting mission teams here because God is at work in the hearts of these young people, and we just want to touch it. We just want to be a part of it, right? We're just like, God is doing something, and we want to we buy you lunch. We want to host you in our building. We, wanna, we just want to connect somewhere with what God is doing, how God is working. I was excited to go out to Express Church because God is working out there, and I just want to, I want to, I can't wait to bless them. I'm excited to give things to them and to, and to encourage them because I see God's hand on what they're doing. So be aware of the situation around you. Second thing is pursue righteousness. Just the same way as you're positioning yourself for hope, you're participating in hope by pursuing righteousness. He was a righteous and worthy man. He had a great reputation. God had blessed him materially, but he didn't own his possessions. He considered himself a steward. And so when when he came, he didn't say, why is that girl? I don't know that foreigner. What's she doing in my field? That's my grain, right? No, he said, this is the Lord's grain, and, and he's giving it to this woman, and I get to be the vessel through which he operates. There was a story in our church of uh, the first time that we went to Brazil. We had a group that went. There was a guy named Steve Rostosi who went on the trip. Uh, he had stepped out in faith and obedience and decided to host a small group in his home. And, and one of the people that started coming to that small group was a guy named Rob. Uh, Rob, when I first met him, he's a biker. Um, he's a rough and tumble guy. I loved him right away. And he said, hey, uh, God has touched my heart. You know, he's doing something in me. But I'm not going to be in a group. I'm not meeting with other people. I'm not doing any of that stuff, right? Okay, <laughs> that's, that's not what I want to do. Um, a few months later, he's going to Steve Rostosi's Bible study, okay? <laughs> so God transformed his heart. And as he knew Steve was going to Brazil, he said, uh, if you guys know Steve, he's, uh, he's, uh, he's, a really, he's not a crocodile Dundee type, right? So, so Rob said to him, he said, hey, do you have a knife you're taking with you? And he's like, uh, no, I don't, I don't have a knife. He's like, oh, you need a pocket knife. Like, there's a million things that could happen on a trip where you might need a, you know. He just felt compelled by God that he needed to give this Swiss Army knife to Steve. And so he searches, and it wasn't easy to find. He told me this this morning. I was talking to him about it. He's like, I couldn't find that knife. I felt compelled twice by God. He spoke clearly to me and said, you need to give Steve that knife. And he couldn't find it. He searched up and down all over his house until he finally, in this really obscure place, he finally found it. He tracked it down. He gave it to Steve, and he said, you need to take this to Brazil. Steve goes to Brazil, has this incredible encounter, meets this guy, Pastor Humberto de Lima, who's doing this great work for God. And, and Steve's heart, just like Boaz, Steve is drawn to Pastor Humberto because he sees him doing hesed love, the way Boaz saw Ruth doing it and, and wanted to be a part of her story. And so Steve is there ministering all week, and at the end of the week he says, I don't know why, but I feel compelled to give this knife to Humberto. And so he didn't even hand it directly to him. He put it in a gift bag with a little note, and he left it there with him. They come back, and they get a letter from Pastor Humberto. And Pastor Humberto says... You will never know how much that knife meant to me. 
from the time I was a young boy, a child, I always wanted a Swiss Army knife. It was like the thing I wanted, but my family never had enough money to get me one. And as I got older and I went into ministry, money was always tight and it seemed, it seemed extravagant to go out and get something like that. And, and recently I've been struggling and praying because I feel like God has called me to do ministry, but I, I'm not sure how I'm going to provide for my family. And so I've just been wrestling with God of like, God, how are you going to provide for me? And when you gave me that knife, it was like God saying directly to me, I've got you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to take care of you. It was, it was tailor-made just for him, and it meant so much to him. It impacted him so greatly. And so he sent this letter back, and you can imagine that this, this letter had an incredible impact on Steve, and it had an incredible impact on Rob, and it had an incredible impact on our church that hope spread like a virus, right? Because Steve participated in hope in Umberto's life, and he got to share in the joy of that. Where is God calling you to participate in hope? Where is God working hope in a situation around you in a really specific way? And you notice Boaz didn't be like, yeah, that's fine. Carry on. Do your thing. He says, no. You go with my people. You follow them around. You come and sit at my dinner table. He was specific. He took specific action to make sure that he participated in the hope that God was working in her life. Where is God working? And how can you join him in it? I'll conclude by saying this, that Ultimately, whenever we talk about hope, we always have to come back to Jesus. Jesus is our ultimate hope. From Genesis, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, to the book of Revelation, the continual hope that is laid out and pointed to and called for is Jesus Christ, that he is our ultimate hope. And he did all of these things perfectly. Jesus always perceived hope. In a stormy boat, when the, when the waves were raging, Jesus perceived that there was hope that God was going to bring them through it. When there was not enough food to feed the 5,000, Jesus perceived the hope that there was enough to provide. And ultimately, in the garden, Jesus perceived the hope that even though he lay down his life and die, that he was bringing a greater hope than the world had ever seen before. Jesus was positioned for hope because he lived a holy and pure life. He pursued God. He lived empowered by the Holy Spirit. He made himself available to God, the Father, at all times. He said, everything I do, I do because the Father tells me. And ultimately, Jesus participated in hope in a way greater than any of us ever will understand or imagine or ever be able to emulate in that in his death, burial, and resurrection that he participated in every one of our hopes. The reason that any of us in this room today have hope is solely because of what Jesus Christ has done. He's the greatest example in pursuing hope. Will you allow him to be your example today? Join me in prayer. Father, I thank you for the hope that you have offered us through Jesus Christ. I thank you that you've not abandoned us, that you know the plans that you have for us. Our life situation that we're in right now might be difficult. It might be a desert. It might be a struggle. But I just pray that we would not lose hope, that we would not stop believing that you love us, that you care for us, that you knew all of our sin and all of our brokenness before you called us into relationship with you, and you loved us anyways that you know everything that we've done and yet you're still positioned and ready and eager to forgive us and to welcome us into your family. You love us. You've given us hope. Father, I just pray that if there are any here who do not know you in a saving way, I pray that you would convict their heart, that you would call them to that knowledge today, that they would take a step forward, that they would position themselves to receive the hope by, by calling out to you, by repenting of their sin and asking you to be their Savior. Father, for all of us, help us to just 
have lives that are saturated with hope, to see it all around us, regardless of our situation or circumstance, and to have the opportunity and the joy of participating in the hope of others. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.